good afternoon, all, both here and out on the phone line. Beautiful Sabbath day, as they all are. To me, a Sabbath's beautiful, whether it's rain or shine or whatever it is, to have the time to rest and rejuvenate. That's an interesting word, rejuvenate. Uh, Root in there is Jew, whether it's spelled the same way or not, but we're spiritual Jews and we have to be rejuvenated, I guess. I like words and I like to play with words, but nonetheless, here we are. Nothing particular, I guess, to announce. No fast this week, so we're off the hook on that one. It's next month. Today, let's go to the book of Revelation, first of all. Uh, some things here to point out in relationship to where the sermon is headed. This is the revelation of Christ himself to St. John. Not uh, St. John Divine's revelation, thank God. But that which was given to John by Christ. And it is a very fitting end book to the Bible. Uh, showing who he is here at the beginning and whom he will become by the time this book and all of its prophecies end. So he begins the book with a great deal of description of the glory of Christ and who he is and what he is and how important he is in the scheme of things. My eye just happened to fall here during the singing on one phrase here that I don't think I ever paid any attention to or noted. I mean, I've read it many times, but it didn't hit me until just now. We have understood that Christ had to go against Satan, who had, whom God had made the ruler, king, if you will, of this world. And mankind subjected themselves to Satan and under his rule from Adam and Eve, right on down until today, and still they are doing it. And the leaders of this world are coming out and saying openly that they are Luciferians, worshippers of the devil, and are making no bones about it anymore. Some are, but some are more blatant and open with it. But it's getting more and more open all the time. So we've understood that Christ is not King of kings and Lord of lords at this point. He's described that way many places in Scripture, but we've understood that in defeating Satan after his 40-day fast, uh, he then became eligible to be King of kings and Lord of lords because Satan was the greatest power that he had to put down. And he proved he can defeat him. He also proved he can take him by the nap of the neck and throw him in a dungeon for a thousand years. But there's a statement here that corroborates all this, and just a little additional proof in a way of what we've understood in chapter 1, verse 5. Uh, he, John greets the churches in Asia and says, Peace from God. And from Jesus Christ in verse 5, who is the faithful witness, he came and was a faithful witness of who God is, 
and the first begotten of the dead, first one resurrected and born into the kingdom of God. But notice this next phrase, and the prince of the kings of the earth. He is not king of the kings of the earth right now. He is the prince of the kings of the earth. What a prince is, is someone who is in line to become king. He is called the prince of peace in another place. Uh, But tying that together with this shows that he has not yet taken his kingship. At the beginning of the book of Revelation, he is still the prince, the one in line to take over from all the kings of the earth. And by the end of this book, uh, with all the things that transpire in it, when you get to chapters 20 and 21, he has become King of Kings and Lord of Lords and is no longer Prince because he will have put down every authority, every king, every prince, everyone who stood in opposition to him or was involved in the kingdoms of men. So all governance will be put down. And all governance of each individual will be put down. Because each individual on earth was set here to rule himself. And most people throughout history have not ruled themselves well. They've done a pitiful job of it. But they will still resist him. So every knee of every person who should have ruled his own life will be broken if he will not accept the rule of Christ. Because he is the king of all kings and the prince of all princes and the ruler of all. Now, he begins to add to that that there is a group of people, and it's defined clearly in this book, who will be raised to his level, not on the same governing power, because he will always be king of kings, but he will make us kings and priests and his wife, his bride. So he has to marry like kind, and we will be raised to the same level as God. That is an incredible understanding that very few in the world have ever grasped, and that the whole world of Christianity to this day does not grasp, and it was essentially revealed through one man here at the end. Now, Paul and the other apostles understood this, and it's in the pages of the Bible, but we went nearly 1,900 years with hardly anyone understanding it. And what an incredible thing it is that a few people here at the end have come to understand that concept that most so-called Christians would call blasphemous. Uh, The Catholic Church, for instance, does not believe it at all. They believe in a beatific vision, which means that their view of God over time can become a little clearer. It's like they start out when they go to heaven, so to speak, or Limbus Infantum if they were babies, or what's the other one they call it if you're older? It doesn't come to mind. 
uh, who, purgatory. And over time, if their relatives after them pay enough money in, they get to see God a little clearer. It's like they're looking through fog or smoke uh, at God, and they can't see him very well. But over time, if his relatives pay, uh, he gets a little clearer view of God. The clouds part or the smoke parts a little. Uh, and I, I think smoke's a better analogy. I've always thought of it as clouds, but they're talking about an ever-burning hell here, and I think it's the smoke that obscures their view more than fog. And that's the best it gets, is to have as clear a view of God as you can get through the penance of relatives. So they don't understand at all that we will be on the same level as God, and be God as God is God, as one statement in the Bible says. So here at the beginning of this last book, a lot of insight is given as to what Jesus Christ, soon coming Emmanuel, is like, and what his power is. Then he gets down after this description and gives a message to seven churches which existed in that time and which may have existed in some form or another throughout the time since then. And certainly all the attitudes here exist here at the end time. I think that's very clear, and I covered recently how he says all the churches will know what was done. I think it was Sophia Tyra. So they all have to be around in order to see. They're not long since dead. Uh, people with the attitudes that are here in chapters 2 and 3. Now we went over Ephesus recently in a Bible study, but I uh, intend to go through it a bit today because it has a lot to do with uh, the rest of the sermon. Chapter 2, verse 1. <clears throat> He says to the angel of the church of Ephesus, and he's made it clear in the first chapter and other places in the New Testament, uh, and the old, really, and in Zechariah uh, as well, that each of these attitudes, each of these churches, has an angel overseeing them, uh, watching after them, guiding them, helping them, doing whatever service God needs them to do to these seven churches. said, These things says he that holds the seven stars in his right hand, he said that just above this, who walks in the middle of the seven golden candlesticks. <coughs> Notice that the address of each of these seven begin with some statement about who he is and his power and what he is to do and to be, already is and shall be. Each one starts with God or Christ himself and what he has to say to each. So he is personally involved here with all and makes such a statement that there is a great and wonderful, above all, being who has their best interests in mind. Now, there's a great lesson in that for you and me. Because here we are as 
just humans, with all the nature and the foibles and the weaknesses and everything else that goes with being a human being. And that's the kind of people he's addressing in each of these. And in fact, the whole Bible is addressed, essentially, to that kind of people. Just people. Not many mighty and noble, a few, but not many, and mostly just people in general. That should impress us, is what I'm saying. That someone as high and as wonderful as he would have an interest in such as we. So then he gets into his message. I know your works and your labor. He starts out very positively here because he is positive in his mind, his emotions, his desires, and his uh, goals for us. I know your works and your labor and your patience and how you cannot bear them which are evil, echoing what he says in Isaiah about those that sigh and cry over the abominations they see in the world and hate the evil that is being perpetrated. And here at the end, it is just getting worse, hand over fist, day by day, and more out in the open. So, he has something good to say about those who don't like what they see in the world. Because most people like the world. They like being in it. They like doing the things they want to in it. Uh, they don't like some of the stuff that goes on because it impacts how they live. But overall, they're not that unhappy with Satan's system. They go along with it. But there are some who can't bear the evil. <clears throat> and you have tried them, which say they are apostles, or not, and have found them liars. Uh, a certain group of people have examined where they came from. I, the first seven, eight, nine years of my life was basically in the Methodist church, and others were Baptists or Church of Christ or Mormons or Catholics or whatever they might have been. And we began to understand what this book is about, and we tried those who were teaching us and found them not to be true to this word. I remember what became the specific issue. I couldn't have been more than eight years of age at that time uh, in the Methodist church. And I don't remember many names, but the preacher then was a little bald-headed guy named Horace Brooks. I don't know why I remember that, but I've listened to him for a few years. And he heard that we were giving up unclean meats. And all did that set him off. He gave one of his 15-20 minute sermons in an attack speech about clean and unclean and gave two or three scriptures to prove that we were wrong. I don't remember if that was the last service we went to. It probably was. But we had proved him wrong and found out he was lying about what he was teaching. So, people who've come into God's church have gone through that process of learning truth and giving away the false teachers and have borne and have patience and for my name's sake have labored and have not fainted. So, 
These are people who worked at becoming true Christians and didn't faint and (laughs) give it up, but kept on. So there's a lot good to say about these particular people he's writing to in this first uh, address. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against you. So he's positive. He wants to compliment everything that is good. But then he wants to let them know what they need to work on. And that's what this book is about, is coming to understand and then working on that which lacks. And that's what he did in every one of these seven dissertations. Even Philadelphia, he said they had to overcome. He didn't point any specific things there. But if you have to overcome, there are some specific things that you need to overcome. And you need to sort that out. Maybe once we reach the level of Philadelphia, which we haven't yet, maybe we reach that level, we'll have a better idea of what we still need to overcome, and it won't have to be pointed out quite so much. But the first six, he pointed it out very clearly. Now, what was the issue with them? I have somewhat against you because you have left your first love. Now, they had worked, they'd been patient, they had proved what is good, but they lost a lot of the emotion, the zeal, the desire. They'd begun to take things for granted, took God for granted, took Jesus Christ for granted. He says in verse 5, Remember, therefore, from where you are fallen, and repent and do the first works. Now, we can all, I think, relate to this because of the energy and the zeal and the excitement, if you will, of beginning to learn the truth and sort it out from the Satanism that we had learned in other churches because that's what it is. Cleverly disguised Satanism. So it was so exciting to learn the truth. And we dug in and we worked hard at changing everything we could. I've seen so many people in that mode over the years because I dealt with people who were having their first contact with the church. Uh, Plain truth, booklets, broadcasts, But in many cases, I was the first human they saw in relationship to the church. And the excitement that they had generated through listening to the radio, the TV, uh, the booklets, and the magazines just shined out of them. They were so happy to see someone who represented what they'd been reading and hearing. And it it was a palpable thing. It was just... Uh, it was always inspiring and exciting to me to see their excitement about which things I already knew, but they were in that first glow of excitement. Like when you see the stranger across the crowded room and fell in love instantly, the old song, you know, whatever. But uh, the excitement was there. 
And he said it had been there with these people. And that once they had learned the truth and settled in to growing, overcoming years of living God's way, they had lost some of the zeal and excitement. Now that's hard to regenerate. Uh, a lot of married people could tell you that they were so excited when they first met. And, you know, they walked around with this glow and big eyes. And, and this went on for weeks and months and maybe years. And over a period of time, it kind of, they kind of took each other for granted. And they kind of resented it in each other and wanted to see the excitement that had been there. And they tried to generate it sometimes with vacations or music or going dancing or whatever they do to try to get it. I remember a song. Let's take the early flight to Florida. Let's rent that little room we used to go to. Let's go to that little cafe with a funny sounding name. And if we're not back in love by Monday, then we'll go our separate ways. <laughs> Let's give it one last chance here before we give up. <laughs> kind, of, kind of an interesting song and a downer song in a way. But they were trying to give themselves hope in that one. And trying to recreate what had been, but they had let slip away one way or another. And that's what this is warning about. It's not letting things slip away, but regaining the excitement. Now, he puts this in the book of Revelation and uses the beginning, the first chapter, to describe what Christ is and what he's done and what he's going to do, that it might generate excitement. Because he knows the first thing he's going to reveal that's of a negative nature is just that loss of excitement and zeal and energy. So, you can say, we're not Ephesus, and this is written to them, so pay it no mind. This is written to any Christian. Uh, all words of God are given for inspiration, uh, for teaching, instruction, and righteousness, and so on, for everyone who reads them. We are each to live by every word of God. So if he's addressing someone in particular, he's addressing us as well, and however that analysis of that person might affect you. You know, I've, over the years, counseled with many, many, many people and all kinds of different people with all kinds of backgrounds. And you know, as I listened to each one, each and every one, I learned something. Each and every one of them had a different story, but I found something in their story that related to me. Because there were emotions, there were feelings, there were experiences that they had had that I might have had a similar experience in a different way, but it was a reminder of that. So, even though I was in a position of teaching and counseling and advising them, at the same time I was learning from them, and 
going back over things in my life that might still need attention. So, when he writes to Ephesus here, each of us can remember the zeal that we originally had. And then we can look back over the years, 30, 40, 50, 60, whatever it is, and see where that has somewhat gone downhill and needs to be reclaimed, reborn, rebuilt. We don't have just till Monday, thankfully. Hopefully we have longer than that. But you never know. You might not last till Monday. <laughs> uh, but you might last several more years, too. But this is something that God wants to see in us always and at all times. And when you get to the last one, the seventh, Laodicea, it's because of lukewarmness, not being hot or cold, and that's really kind of what he's describing here to Ephesus. It's not hot or cold, uh, or at least not hot, not like they had been, but they had cooled down a lot. So, there is a desire on God's part to see us all excited about what he has for us, excited about what we already have and that which is coming as well. If you're not excited about what you already have, how are you going to be excited about what you don't yet see? Anyway, remember where you came from and where you fell and repent and do the first works or else I will come to you quickly and will remove your candlestick out of his place except you repent. So this is a big issue with him. If he removes our candlestick, we're going into the lake of fire. He sealed us when we were baptized. We had the seal of his seal put on us. And if that gets removed, uh, we're in deep trouble. He says, But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And the same message then that he gives to everyone. Overcome, and I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So he says, you've got a problem, but if you overcome it, everything's going to turn out all right. So he gives encouragement there at the end. Now, what were the deeds of the Nicolaitans? The best we've been able to figure is they were destroyers of the truth. Uh, they compromised on things. They didn't follow through with them. And I would think that losing your first love is very much equated to that because you begin to not take it as seriously. I think the Sabbath, for instance, is a good uh, one to use. We can be excited about the Sabbath and be so ever careful to try not to do anything uh, on the Sabbath that might be inappropriate. Uh, we put our foot on it. We walk on it then over time. And we begin to think and maybe do things on the Sabbath that God did not intend. Now, he makes it clear uh, that it was made for us. It was made to encourage us, strengthen us, inspire us, 
It wasn't made for us to do as we wished on. And he makes it very clear there in Isaiah 58, we're not to walk on it, and we're not to think our own thoughts or do our own deeds on it, but it is a day not only of physical rest, but of spiritual rest and rejuvenation. And that is a higher thing than physical rest. Sure, you do extra rest physically, but don't neglect the spiritual rest, because you may have been tied up six days doing the things of man, and not given as much time and energy to God as perhaps we should. But then on the Sabbath, he gives us a reminder every seven days, hey, let's concentrate on me today, not on you. You got your six days to your thing, now let's do my thing here. But we begin to take it for granted, and then people begin to watch television programs. They begin to, some of them, play golf or whatever. Uh, that happened in the Church of God. There were people out who were supposedly church members out playing golf on the Sabbath because it was relaxing and it was beautiful out on the golf course. And I'm not working. But they were pursuing their own desires and things. Now, is it wrong to turn on a commu- computer and or a TV and maybe watch some news or catch up on things a bit? Probably not. Uh, because it helps us be reminded where the world is going and remind us that we need to be praying that we escape all of this. So watching the news is part of watching for Christ. So it can be related. But I've known people who would sit and have CNN all day long on the Sabbath. Now where did they seek God? Or were they just watching and CNN will do the same thing over and over every 30 minutes or an hour. And yet they sat there glued to it all day Sabbath. And I think that was an escape from prayer, from Bible study, from meditation, from doing the things they ought to have been doing. So is it wrong to watch the news? All I'd say is be very careful that that doesn't become all-consuming. And take your time that you need to be refreshed spiritually. That's what the Sabbath is about. A time that pictures the millennium, a thousand years, where the whole earth is going to go into jubilee and be refreshed for a thousand years. So the Sabbath needs to be to us what the millennium is going to be to those people who live on into it and live through it. That's what the Sabbath should be. A time of Christ ruling in our lives. A time of Him, we being very aware of Him for that 24 hours. He set it aside so you really have nothing else to do. But we find a way sometimes to eh, just not quite get it done the way we really ought to. We get spiritually lazy even as we laze around physically. And we can't let that happen. We need to put some energy into spiritual rejuvenation. So, over time, we get to where maybe we take it for granted a little bit. And you can do that with any of the instructions of God. So he says, let's get rid of that. So, the book of 
or the message here in Revelation to Ephesus is how great a God he is. And don't lose sight of that. Okay? Let's go back to the book of Ephesians then, which Paul wrote. See, this was John writing this with inspiration from Christ himself in the book of Revelation. But Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles primarily, though he did teach Israelites as well. But that was his specific job, was to be the one to primarily go to the Gentiles. And there was a church in the city of Ephesus, and he wrote this book to them and to all of us, since God put it in the Bible. Uh, I imagine there are a lot of letters that Paul wrote that are not in this book. There are only a few of the letters he wrote that God put in Scripture. Now, the others may have sounded somewhat the same because he was preaching and teaching the same things. But God saw fit to include these so that we all might benefit from them, okay? Not just that little church in Ephesus, but all of us. And you'll note a theme through here that ties in directly with what we just discussed in Revelation 2. He goes through here and spends quite a little time describing how wonderful the things are that we have. Now that's what John was addressing in Ephesus. You've kind of forgotten a little bit how wonderful it is what you have been given and what is set aside for you in the future. So they've lost their excitement about that. And you'll see a lot of that theme right here in this book, written to the same people by a different author, inspired by the same God. So he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, he did not set himself up. Remember, he had been struck down and uh, slapped around a bit, made to go blind, and then he got ready to listen. And then Christ told him, you're not going to be killing Christians anymore. You're going to be showing them love and teaching them about life instead of destroying their life and death. Quite a turnaround for him. And he was pretty excited about it once he understood it and went about it energetically. So he didn't appoint himself. Many have and many still do. Uh, without any direction from God, decide that since they have read and they understand that they should be a teacher. But that's not the way God does it. There's plenty of scriptures on that. We won't get into it. But he does make that point. God sent me here, he says. So what I have to say is coming from God. Now, the same approach was used there in Revelation 2. This is coming from Christ himself to you. The Prince of Kings, he who will become the King, is speaking to you. Listen up. Now, it's easy for us to be in a crowd of 20, or a crowd of 100, or a crowd of 1,000, or 10,000 at a feast, and 
think, well, they're speaking to the crowd and not take it as personally as we should. And sometimes, if we know people in the crowd, maybe not at the feast, we might know a few there, but we don't know most of them. But if there's a church of anywhere from 50 to 500 or 600, in my experience, um, you'll know enough people there to figure out who he's talking to today. It's probably not you, but you, you know who it is as you side-eye him. Are you listening? Or are you sleeping? Because we tend to like to slough the blame off on somebody else. Now, Christ is very personal. And we need to grasp that. He personally called you. He says, no man can come except the Spirit of the Father. Draw him individually. There are a lot of people that knock and never hear. But he chooses to whom he will open the ears of. Individually, personally. You could not understand what you understand sitting here today if God had not individually opened your mind. So everything he says in this book is written personally to you. And I'm holding the book. It's written personally to me. There's nothing in here that he is not addressing that isn't to you. So quit blaming it on somebody else. I mean, in the garden, they blamed it on the devil. They blamed it on God himself. And then they blamed it on each other. They had to find somebody to blame their sin on. We blame our parents. We bring our, blame our upkeeping, uh, up jerking. <laughs> we blame our teachers. We blame the church we went to. We blame our boss. We blame whoever. It's just human to do that. And some still just blame the devil. The devil made me do it. No, you let the devil influence you to do it. God does tempts no man, but the devil tempts everybody. And he's the one that laid it on you if your own human nature wasn't sufficient to do it itself. So he wants us to take this absolutely personally. Everything is written here. Directed specifically to the saints at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, the saints at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus includes you and me because we are working at being faithful to him. So he makes a specific and then a very broad statement there, does he not? And he was there as a representative of Christ. What he said came from Christ. He'd been in the desert being taught by Christ individually for three and a half years, and he was passing along the things that he had learned. So he was in a position to confer grace and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. He was their representative, if you will, uh, his, their pastor, the one that God had put in charge of that particular uh, 
group of people, the Gentiles, and specifically these who had become spiritual Jews. You and I were spiritual Gentiles. We may have Israelite blood in our veins. We may have some Gentile blood in our veins. Probably a mixture of all the above. Remember how much Israel used to intermarry with the Gentiles around them way back. So there's a certain amount of Gentile in everybody. You might be predominantly one or the other, but it doesn't matter. Because we were all, as Methodists, Baptists, Church of Christ, Catholics, atheists, whatever we were, we were all spiritual Gentiles, not knowing God the Father and His Son. Thought we did, but we didn't. Didn't know them at all. You know, you meet somebody and you have an idea about them. You begin to develop an opinion about them right away. Good, bad, or indifferent. You begin to form ideas about who they are and what they are. And people do that and maybe they come up all roses And they decide, well, let's get married. So, having had a good opinion about each other, they get married. And then a year or two later, or a day or two later, (laughs) whenever it happens, they begin to say, I never knew you. I've found learned things about you I never knew or suspected or thought. And then, on the other hand, they'll say, you never knew me. You thought you knew me, but you didn't know me. So, a lot of people think they know Christ and they don't know Him at all because they haven't learned much about Him yet. And since they don't know much about Him, they can't know Him. We have to come to know Him. And He says, if we don't, He'll come back and say, I never knew you. You professed me. You thought you were a Christian. But I never knew you. I don't get to know those who are against me, he says. I get to know those who are willing to know and follow me. And make the effort so to do. So he blesses them in attitude and mind and words here, uh, who's blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. So he states clearly that everything he has to say and every good wish toward them came from Christ himself. Just as the book of Revelation clearly shows at the beginning. Then he says, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Now, he, before the world was formed, and his father had a wish, a desire. A dream they wished to fulfill. Now, a lot of us dream dreams, and some of us never get beyond that. 
Some of us dream dreams about things we want to do or be on earth, and we go after it, and we get her done. Because people are different. The Father and the Son didn't just dream a dream that was fanciful. They had a goal, a purpose, a dream in one sense then, of what they wanted. And they wanted a people who would be holy and without blame, worshiping Him in love. That was what they wanted from the very beginning. So they devised a plan, a purpose, to create human beings with a short lifespan, started out giving them one about a thousand years and decided that's too much. Cut it to 750 and then to 250. And they finally said, I think 70 is probably about it, give or take a little. That's all they need down there. If they can't get it done in that long, <laughs> there's, there's got to be another time for them. And most will come up in the second resurrection and have that chance. But, they figured this out, and this is what they wanted. Having predestinated us to the, the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Now, somebody take, some people take this, and a little other mention of predestination, to say that every one of us was predestined before the foundation of the world, as individuals, to be in his kingdom or not. And looking at the world and the history of mankind, you would have to conclude most were not. Most people have not been holy and without blame before him in love. Most people have rejected God from the very beginning and all the way through their lives and accepted Him only in small ways, but not wholeheartedly. Now, what would that make God if He had called and predestined, knew who we would be, knew how tall, how thin, how smart, how dumb, how crippled, how whatever it is that we are today, he knew us as individuals all the way back then and then caused it to be arranged through man's history so that you would be who you are because he had to have worked that out in order for you to be who you are. Because we're all individuals. Now, a lot of people have done a lot of different things in life. And a lot of us who have lived on this earth have been illegitimate children. A lot of us have been uh, born to parents who could have chosen a different husband or wife. That means that from Adam on, every marriage had to be arranged. Every illegitimate child that has been born had to have been at the direction of God in order for that person to have been preordained to be whatever he's going to be, saved or lost. 
He had to have gone through that, and he would have had to have caused all the sins that caused a lot of us to be here today that wouldn't have been here without sin. Somewhere between Adam and here. Doesn't make a bit of sense. Now there are a few, he mentions, in the Bible, that he knew from the womb. Now that was a pretty rare occurrence, was it not? That he knew Abraham or Moses or someone from the womb. Jeremiah comes to mind. He knew me from my mother's womb. Not from before the world's foundations were laid, but from my mother's womb. God doesn't really know what you and I are going to be until the particular night, maybe day, whatever, that we were conceived and the father and mother seed got together and and formed a specific DNA that became you. How do you, does God arrange that? Somebody's married for 40 years and there's only one time and one place that everything got together the way he wanted it. Well, now, if everything got together the way God wanted it, why are you like you are? (laughs) You know? Why are we the way we are? No, he did not plan individually every individual that would be born. He didn't need to do that. What he was doing was looking for some people at times when he was doing a calling. Now, he did a great calling in the days of the apostles, and then there was a great falling away, and there was not much following of Christ thereafter until here at the end. Not much. Are you and I any better than somebody born in 1300 A.D.? No. How could we be better? They were just a human being conceived and born and had a life, just like us. Now, how come so many of those people never understood the truth? And they're going to hell because they weren't ever saved, as the Protestants would say. So they weren't predestined. All those billions of people weren't predestined to be in God's kingdom, and they're all going to hell if you listen to a Baptist or a Methodist preacher. That would make God's plan kind of not very successful. You know what I mean? If I'm going to be living forever and ever and ever, I would like to be among successful beings. You know what I mean? It's much more pleasant as a human being to be around people who are leading a successful life. I don't mean that necessarily in terms of money, because that's the way the world measures wealth. But how about successful in marriage? How about successful in child rearing? How about successful in how they work and what they produce? There are lots of things that have to do with true success. What's their relationship with God? There's real success, if they can have that. How many people on earth could you say are successful in their relationship to God? 
You don't know very many. You'll never meet very many compared to the amount of people there are. People who are successful with God are extremely rare. Now, that's what he'd like to get across to us, is that he gave us something very, very special, something no one else gets, that he was looking for people that he could work with and take them from being the weak and base of the world, and through his power and his spirit, he could transform them, transform them into holy people without blame before him in love. Now, there's no one born that way. No one born that way. Christ was born in that position and kept it. We might have been born sinless, but it didn't last very long. Selfishness is a form of sin, and that shows up right away. He's trying to get across to these people in these very early words how special it is what they had. And that's what they had lost there in the book of Revelation, how special it was what God had given them, and they had begun to take it for granted. Now, Paul saw that in them and wrote not the exact same words, but if you look at the context here, this is what he's driving at. Is that God was looking for some people from the very beginning that he would work with. He worked with a few before the flood. He worked with a few afterward. He worked with quite a few in the early New Testament. And he's working with quite a few here at the end. But the rest of mankind basically hasn't been touched by God. Haven't been involved with it. They're no better than the ones lived before them or after them. But it was a time when he was going to call people for a certain reason at a certain time. And he had a work that needed done here at the end. So he started working with just one man 1900 years after Christ declared in 27 A.D., that the jubilee, the important jubilee, would be coming. And he began to work with Herbert Armstrong a hundred years before that jubilee would be declared. To do what? To begin to open the minds and call a lot of people. And then out of the many called, few would be chosen. Well, now, if they had been chosen before the world was laid, how then are they getting chosen now? You and I are under the pressure of whether we get chosen or not. We've all been called. Will we get chosen? And God says, He watches what we do. He watches what He thinks. And then He will decide. A judgment will be made. Now is the time of salvation. And he's judging you and I day by day. So it's not something that was decided before, millions of years before you were born. It's something that's being decided right now. And that's why you and I, 
go before God every day and ask for forgiveness and mercy and grace and patience is because we know we still have lacks. We're not what we need to be, totally holy and without blame before Him in love. So we work at it day by day. Why does He put us here and say, do good works, if it had all been decided a long time ago? Why does He say, seek my grace and my forgiveness, if it had all been decided a long time ago? You see, the idea of total predestination has nothing to do with the rest of the life and what it tells us. Nothing. So, he decided beforehand that he would develop a holy people. Now, he knew from Adam and Eve on what mankind would do. He knew Satan quite well, what he had done, and what he was determined to do. So he knew what would happen in the Garden of Eden. That was no surprise to him. He already had it all figured out. And it's been that way ever since. But he had a plan. And his plan is that most people ultimately will be in his kingdom because he is a successful father who knows how to raise kids. Now, if kids don't want to be raised by him, he leaves them alone until there comes a time, beginning of the millennium, great white throne judgment, when he says, now look, children, I let you go your way. I let you think your father was the devil. That's the way you wanted to go. You wanted to go his way. All right, you did it. How did it work out for you? Not so good, was it? Now you're standing here with cobwebs in your ears, just having been brought out of the ground, and I'm going to give you a chance to live under your father and his son and live forever. Now you had plans, didn't you, some of you, to live forever? And you were going to change all the DNA and you were going to make everything through science so that you could have your organs regenerated, your mind regenerated, and you would live forever. How did it work out for you? Bill and Jane and Hillary and all of you. How did it work out for you? Klaus Schwab. I looked him up. I didn't know where he was from. I looked him up last night. Just because I said, who is this guy? I hadn't heard of him until least recently. Well, he's born in Germany, uh, having lived in Switzerland, and his mother was a Jew. Don't know about his father for sure, but I suspect we have there an Edomite, an Ashkenazi Jew. And Obadiah says that we'll be ruled over, and the Jews will have an awful lot to do with our demise. So I thought of another one. I think I'll look him up. George Soros, who's doing all he can to destroy this country at the moment. I'm going to Wikipedia and other sources. Well, he was a Hungarian, so I thought, well, what does that have to do with anything? Then you get into the background, and he was a Hungarian Jewish refugee. Oh, 
So he's probably an Ashkenazi Edomite. In a position of power and money that Obadiah says they would have, and they would laugh over and have to do with the demise of the Israelites here at the end time. You look these people up, there they are. They all, it all fits together, just like the Scripture says. Well, those guys are going to come up with the second resurrection. And God's going to say, how did it work out for you? Now, here's David. Here are all the sons of Jacob, the heads of the tribes that will be on the earth at that time. Uh, they're God now. Bow. <laughs> and they'll bow. They won't bow now. And God is going to give them a very powerful witness as to who He is right at the end of this age for the last three and a half years. A powerful witness with plagues and lack of rain and blood and hail and mice and frogs and whatever. And they won't listen at all. How's it going to work out for them? Not too well. But God's going to be fair about it. He's going to put the Gentiles in charge of the world and say, okay, you've got three and a half years of rule. Here it is. Rule according to righteousness. And they won't do it. And they'll have two people reminding them every day of that and who God is with power. More power than they have. And oh, how they'll be hated. But God's going to give that witness. He is a fair God. So then, when He breaks their knees and they go into death at the seven last plagues, they're going to see that everything they dreamed of turned to hell on earth. Then they'll listen, and His plan will work out. So He's predestinated the world, really, to become worshipers of God. And most, before it's over, will. But he's called son to the adoption of children by Christ to himself. Not very many. He always called it a little flock. Fear not little flock. All the way through, it shows that there won't be many. So that would make him a failure. An abject, almost failure if only a very few become what he says here they need to be. He'll, be. he'll work it all out. He has a plan and a purpose that they figured out long before they redid the earth. Long before. What an incredible plan. You know, I have a lot of cousins. <clears throat> I have a lot of aunts and uncles. A lot of relatives and other people I know that haven't been given what I've been given. I have some who were given what I've been given. In fact, the gal that kept the records in Pasadena told me one point that we had more people, more members in the Church of God than any other family on earth. God calls the weak of the base. And when I count up the amount of uncles and aunts and cousins and so on who were actually in the church at one time or another, there were a lot of them. 
Some have fallen aside. Some kind of kept it a few years and went other directions. When I see them at a family reunion or a funeral, which is where most of our reunions come, they're all so happy to see me. I haven't had anything to do with them mostly through my life because I was busy with the church. And when they'd have cousin reunions, 1,500 miles away or whatever, I wouldn't show up. I was busy with what I'm busy doing. And I didn't have a whole lot in common with them anyway, because they were living their lives a different way than I was trying to live mine. So when we did get together at the 50th or 60th anniversary of the grandparents or whatever, hi, good to see you. <coughs> Let's hug. Let's look at you and see how old you are and how many times you've been married. And, you know, just, just the normal stuff. But we were given something precious. And he said there would be a great falling away. And many would not follow through with something as precious as what he's given us. And I pray for my cousins and aunts and uncles, the ones still alive at least, that since God gave them truth, he will see it through, and he knows whether they were truly converted or not. And whether they were being judged now or whether they're still a candidate for the first resurrection, I have no idea. Couldn't discern it one way or another. It's his judgment entirely. But I look at those people that I knew and loved and grew up with, and I think, man, I don't want to lose out. I want to be in God's kingdom and I want to see them there. And if this thing comes down the way it appears to be, a lot of them are still going to be alive and some of them are going to lose their lives in the tribulation. And I don't want to be there losing mine with them. I want to escape that by the grace of God. Don't you? This is for us. According to the good pleasure of His will. Now, when He called you, what's your name? God... You know your name. When God called you, He did it according to the pleasure of His will. It pleased Him to decide to call you. Now, you have various opinions of yourself, right? Some of you suffer from very low self-esteem. Some of you suffer from great esteem. We're all somewhere on that board of high opinion or low opinion of ourselves. And some days you have a high opinion of yourself and some days you have a low opinion. And it varies. But none of us are what we need to be and ought to be and are striving at becoming. But, rest assured that God had the opinion that through the power of His Spirit, He could transform you and He could see you through to salvation. Therefore, when He decided to open your mind to the truth, it was with His good pleasure to welcome you as a candidate to be the bride of Jesus Christ Himself, ruling over the entire world and universe.
That's what he had in mind when he whispered your name. My name. Now, what's my opinion of myself? I'm not going to tell you. But I've been through an awful lot of different experiences in my life. And some things I'm pleased with, some things I'm not at all pleased with. I've thought some things in my life that I'm pleased with. I've thought thought some things that I'm not pleased with at all. As a human being, I look at myself and I have a deceitful, desperately wicked mind that cannot follow God and know God without the power of His Spirit and an open mind to do so. So He tells us not to have esteem and pride in ourselves to humble ourselves and realize that we are nothing. And if He doesn't create something in us so that we become something, we will go into the ground and become nothing. (laughs) And we all face that. And some of us are standing near the exit. So we think about it. He had an opinion about you when he called you. And he looked at you and he thought, this one is not holy, and it certainly is not without blame, and it certainly isn't worshiping me in love. It came out of this world. It still thinks like the world. But I am going to do my good pleasure in this person, and that's what he intends. Now, that's why he's the potter, and we're the clay, and he has to mold us and shape us and make us into what he wants us to be. Now, what is the job of the clay? To be pliable, to be workable, to be shapeable, to yield to his hands so that he can make us into what he has in mind that we will be. So when he started working with you, you weren't at all what he and his father envisioned before the foundations of the world. But he decided he'd work with you. Weak, base, deceitful, desperately wicked. I'll fix that one. It's a crackpot. I'll remold it. I'll make it. First, got to make it yield. You know, and some of us, he almost had to break into pieces to get us to yield. There were some people, when he called them, that fought it. Oh, they fought like a fish on a line. I'm not going to the boat. Over time, well, I switched metaphors there, but... Over time, we became a more cracked pot until we began to yield to his hand and we could begin to be worked with. But never lose sight of the fact that it is you as an individual. That's what a lot about this is today. You can't just group us together and say, we are such. You have to say, I am such. And God is working with me as such. 
to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved. Christ was the beloved, and he made us acceptable through the forgiveness of sin and the change in direction, put us under grace that we might not die for our sins because he died for us. So we're placed under he who is beloved to become holy and blameless in love before God. I thought I'd get through a couple of chapters, but I made it through six verses. So we'll see you next week. God willing.